0: today's episode of Trek in Time, we're going to talk about being illogical. That's right, it's Enterprise, Season 4, Episode 8, Awakening. Welcome everybody to Trek in Time, where we're watching every episode in chronological order, and we're also talking about what the world was like at the time of original broadcast. We are currently in Season 4 of Enterprise. We're about one-third way through, which, I mean, I never thought we'd get it. Get here, man. I don't know about you, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but we did it. We did it, and we're going to keep moving forward. So, we're also talking about the year 2004, and we're almost done with 2004 in the same way that we're almost done with season four of this show. So, we're in November of 2004, we're going to talk about both those things in this episode. And who are we? Well, there's me. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi, I write some stuff for kids. And with me is my brother, Matt, and he is the Matt Farrell of Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you doing today? doing very well. How's your weekend? So far, so good. It's been a chilly weekend here in New York city. And yesterday I took advantage of what were relatively clear skies to go to the Brooklyn museum. And there is a show that is there right now. I believe it is ending rather soon, but it was a showing of fashion designs that were very popular in the eighties and early nineties. It was a lot of very couture stuff. Um, But a lot of it was stuff that was recognizable from ad campaigns, from things like George Michael musical videos, um, mm-hmm. All sorts of stuff like that. And a lot of it, as it moved into the 90s, started to take on a real heavy Fritz Lang sci fi vibe that mm-hmm. I was completely into. So it was like outfits that made the models look like they were robots or cyborgs. And it got me really, really excited about getting back and talking about Star Trek. So <laughs> I'm in the right frame of mind. As we usually start, every show. We start with comments from you, the listeners on our previous episode. So Matt, what have you pulled out from the comments for us?
1: Well, there was one in reference to how long it's going to take us to get through all this, the shows a recurring uh, theme in the commentary. Yes. yes. Charles Fernandez wrote really love and hoping to hoping we all get to 2060 together. That's right. <laughs> but Aside from that, there, uh, from the last episode, which was uh, episode 81 about the forge, which was the kickoff episode on this little mini story arc we're on right now mm. from Dan Sims. There's a lot of agreement in our assessment of that first episode. Dan Sims wrote, what a great episode. I love so many aspects. We'll really miss the Admiral character. He always did a great job and really like the line with him and Saval about how humans are like a bit of all of these other aliens, how fast they are at progressing and asking and him asking if the Vulcans are scared of it great last line for him. Uh, this story arc is much more interesting than the last one. Yeah, And directly related to that from pale ghost was this one being written by actual novelists makes sense considering how much lore that there is. I also love this episode. The conversation about Falcons being scared of humanity is exactly why I don't like the new Trek or DS nine, Sean, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's one of Sean's favorites. <laughs> it takes the hope that star Trek carefully builds and drop kicks it out the third story window. It's like if Voyager never existed and instead uh, followed the ship that used the dimensional aliens as a warp booster. Yeah. It's more gritty, dark and realistic, but that's not what I want from star Trek. You know, for some people, next generation and Voyager were the only examples of healthy adults that they could look up to as role models. And I, I don't know if I agree with pale Ghost completely, but I I definitely have that sentiment for me. The whole thing about star Trek is there's that optimism and that Mm -hmm. hopefulness of a brighter future for humanity in the galaxy. It's, it's, it's supposed to be a, a, have an optimistic take. And I love deep space nine. It doesn't resonate with me as much as it does with Sean, mm-hmm. but that was one of my struggles with that show when it first aired, which was D- deep space nine had a real pessimistic kind of a through line through a lot of it. It was very dark and gritty and just like very foreboding. And it was always felt like uh human that we were losing our footing and like with the whole galactic war and all that kind of stuff. So it's, I did, I did feel like that one kind of like, didn't feel true star Trek to me, but at the same time, it was a really good show. It was really well-written, really well, well acted. And for me, I'm a little more comfortable with having star Trek come in different shapes and sizes and kind of push the envelopes in ways that pull more of an audience in. So Mm -hmm. I I don't want to be too prescriptive, which is why I don't know if I agree with Pilgos completely, but I get his sentiment completely about. He likes it for the optimism
0: absolutely i completely i completely understand what you're saying and i can also understand what pale ghost is saying yeah pale ghost thank you so much for the comment i i think that it's also a matter of how much optimism do you need in your i mean it's sort of like how much how much sugar do you need in your tea in order for it to be sweet enough for you and for me i'm very comfortable with very very bitter tea yeah it's (laughs) i can find the optimism in the briefest of moments in deep space nine for me there's you know elements of a character like garrick or in the dominion war like a moment where you're like oh this is going to 100 years from now be a turning point in the relationship with the klingons or the Cardassians. it's it's that kind of deep buried optimism that i'm very very comfortable with and i can understand and appreciate how for other people consuming a story with that heavily hidden optimism might not hit the right spot for them. And it really does become that really does become a thrust about personal taste as opposed to being right or wrong about something. So Mm -hmm. I, I can appreciate the, the value in somebody saying, this isn't the flavor I'm looking for, but before we go much further, you'll notice there's a sound in the background that of course is our read alert, Matt, that means it's time for you to jump in and tackle the Wikipedia description. And as I mentioned previously, as we move forward in enterprise, these descriptions have gotten better and better. Yeah. And if we have any new listeners who are jumping in right now and don't quite understand why the read alert and the, the tackle, the Wikipedia description (laughs) is framed in that way. Go back to some of our earlier episodes. Oh boy. when Matt was having to read descriptions that were possibly generated by a computer. (laughs) Yes. But Matt, Take a peek at this one for the current episode, which is of course Awakening.
1: All right. Set in the 22nd century, the series follows the adventures of the first Starfleet starship Enterprise, registration NX-01. In this episode, the Vulcan government seek to make the Enterprise leave orbit so they can attack a renegade faction of Vulcans and afterwards the long-standing enemy of the Vulcans, the Andorians. Meanwhile, Captain Jonathan Archer and Commander T'Pol have been captured by the Syronites. And it's discovered that Archer has the K- Katra of Surak. He has visions, which lead him to find an agent Vulcan artifact called the Kashara. as the group come under attack from the Vulcans. That's actually a very accurate description. I thought so too. Well done Wikipedia. Well done Wikipedia.
0: You win again. <laughs> Should change the name to Winipedia. Ah, oh. no, so this is episode number Eight of season four It's directed by Roxanne Dawson. She's back again for her 10th go at directing a star Trek episode in this series. And it will be her last. So Roxanne tip of the hat, always great to see her name in the opening credits. She's a really, really strong director and I really appreciate her work. This episode was written by Andre Bermanis. We of course have seen his name many times at this point in the show. He started as a science advisor. He eventually became a writer on the show himself. And I thought it was interesting that the names of the previous writers on the previous episode appear as co-producers on this episode. Mm-hmm. So it is highly likely, I think that the two of them crafted the entire story arc and then individual episodes. They wrote the first one. This one's written by Andrew Barmanis. Another screenwriter will probably write the next one. The original air date of this episode, November 26, 2004, and guest appearances include Robert Foxworth as Administer Wallace, Gary Graham as Ambassador Saval, again, John Rubenstein as Minister Kuvak, Bruce Gray as Surak, and Kara Zedeker as Tapao. And Matt, I'd like to start off our conversation about this episode, focused on the two of them. Joanna Cassidy is also in this as to Les, which is to Paul's mother. The conversation I want to have right out of the gate about the two guest stars who play T'Pau and Surak, that's Bruce Gray, and Kara Zedeker. They were cast as a result of similar appearances to the actors who play those characters in the original series, in the original series, to is seen in Amok Time, where the Enterprise goes to Vulcan because of Spock's needing to deal with his betrothal, and classic episode. And the character of Surak appears in an episode where members of history are recreated by aliens to work with or against the enterprise crew. And in that episode, Serac appears as a result of the aliens saying the major figure from earth history who will work in allegiance with the crew will be Abraham Lincoln. And on the Vulcan side, it is Siroc. So Siroc appears in the original series for that reason, Matt on our show notes, I've included some pictures of the actors who play the original characters. So we had originally Celia Lovsky played Tapao in the original series. And I'm curious in my estimation, the role of Surok, the actor who plays the older version, which is the one that appears here in enterprise, not bad as far as similar
1: appearances.
0: No, he's not bad. Yeah. But you can tell
1: it's not, it's exact. not the
0: same guy. It, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, it never was going to be because we're talking about a span of 40 years. The actor likely passed away well before then, mm-hmm. but I'm curious about your take on Topow because she was cast specifically because of a similar appearance as the original actress. And again, that's Celia Lovsky played it to power originally. To me, I see no similarity between these two actors. Me either. I see nothing. I see nothing about the younger woman, Kara Zetiker, that would have led to her getting this role. And in fact, I found, and here's the difficult, this is the main difficulty I have with this episode. I do not mind the story. I do not mind the, the thrust of what they're doing with the Vulcan government and the Syranites and all of that. I found all of that storytelling really great, but I was consistently distracted by the fact that Kara Zedeker not only does she not look like the original actress? And to me, that's not important. No, what is important is that she sounds nothing like Celia Lovsky because Celia Lovsky <laughs> was Austrian. Uh-huh. And when they put together the original series, they cast Celia Lovsky to give this high priestess of Vulcan society, a different, unique accent. It was intentionally done so that here came this this high priestess of vulcan society and she spoke with a shakespearean thou and thine and with a with a noticeable accent on top of that Mm -hmm. and here comes a younger tapau who's basically like hey guys what's going on and i (laughs) found myself disappointed and distracted throughout the episode that this was not I would have appreciated if there had been a more nun-like quality to Tapao, something that evoked the idea that she viewed herself in almost religious terms as a member of this society. And it especially becomes highlighted for me when in the notes on this episode, it was suggested by Manny Cotto that one of the approaches they took on this was this was almost a sci-fi depiction of the protestant reformation that took place in the catholic church where martin luther split off from the catholic church and began the protestant movement and which mm-hmm. would eventually grow into luther, the lutheran church the idea of vulcan being cat the catholic hierarchy and the syrenites being the protestants yep i found myself scratching my head as to Why there didn't seem to be a deeper use of religious iconography, not necessarily making it about religion, but just evoking the idea of a kind of spiritual journey. Because as it is in this episode, I find myself thinking the Syrianites almost seem like refugees just to be out in the wild, as opposed to a really clear, like, oh, symbolic difference from the Vulcan hierarchy, the Vulcans who are shown as being members of the Vulcan high council Mm -hmm. are wearing all sorts of religious looking garb. They're wearing lots of robes. I found myself thinking it would have been more interesting to show these individuals struggling to survive in the forge, also wearing something monastic and evoking the kind of images that we saw, even in the, the motion picture, when you see Spock, on Vulcan on his own religious journey. He is wearing robes. He is in the midst of the forge in that kind of monastic style. And I found myself thinking they really didn't kind of scratch the right itch with the casting, with the voice work or with the imagery of
1: how these people live. How did you feel about all of that? I, 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 don't agree with you on all that. None of that jumped out at me, but things that jumped out at me were, were the costuming. It's like how we complained about the costuming on the one about the complaining on the character's names where they were the, uh, the augments. Humans, yeah. the augments, how they were all wearing these tattered clothes. And it was like, it felt like, oh, they're wearing costumes. And it was like, it didn't feel right. Same thing here. It's like, it, it would have felt different if there had been some kind of costuming to kind of give the Serenites kind of a, a feel, but it was just like, everybody's just kind of wearing random stuff. And it yeah. was just like random people. And it kind of did feel like a refugee camp. But other than that, that for me, that's a minor nitpick. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I didn't get hung up on it. It's been a long time since I saw the episode of the original series with T'Pau. So for me, I completely forgot that she had an accent. Yeah, So it didn't jump out at me at all. Um, obviously she looks nothing like her. So that wasn't, I didn't care about that at all. So it's like, for me, it didn't jump out at me. Like it seems to have jumped out at you, but the yeah. fact that they called this out as we cast her because of, yeah, like, I find what? myself really, it's one of those you things focused where, on the wrong thing. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't distract
0: me from right. enjoying the episode, but it's something right. that every time I see it, I am aware of it. So it's right. a little bit like every time she opens her mouth, I'm just like, man, eh, it's pal. Uh, no, yeah. not to pal, no, no. <laughs> so I ping pong back and forth between, yeah, this is a great episode. And, uh, wasn't there any Austrian actress available who could have <laughs> anyway, on this day in history, November 26, 2004, it goes back again, Matt, to something that's happened on this show a number of times when they put a new episode right up against Thanksgiving. I found myself like at this point, it really reading between the lines. I'm like the network knew they were ending this. Yeah, they didn't care. They didn't care. It's been moved to Friday nights, which is the low point night in any week of television, because lots of people who watch TV are not home on Friday nights. And on this date, November 26th, the day after Thanksgiving in 2004, this would be a low point for enterprises viewership, but what else was going on in the world? Well, we've already talked about this over and over the song that Matt was dancing his little heart out to was <laughs> over and over Nelly featuring Tim McGraw. And as I've said before, over and over, over and over, we'll be playing over and over until the end, end of the year <laughs> at the box office, the movie national treasure, which is of course, Nicolas Cage. In the 2004 American action adventure heist film from Walt Disney pictures, it made $35 million out of the 347 million it will go on to make. And on television on this day, people were watching on ABC, eight simple rules and complete savages. Those were getting about 7 million viewers and 5 million viewers. Joan of Arcadia was getting nine. The Fox movie special, Mr. Deeds was getting about 7 million viewers. Dateline NBC was getting eight. UPN was showing Star Trek Enterprise to 3.4 million viewers. And what I like about you and Grounded for Life were on the WB. Remember the WB? Oh, yeah. Yeah, nobody does. Mm. They were getting about 2 million viewers. And those were both repeats. So here we have a brand new episode of Star Trek, the second of a three-part storyline about Vulcans. So you'd think, like, original fans of the original series are going to be like, oh, this is a thing for me. And no, no, they're not building any new audience. And the network is not helping them. By putting it on immediately after thanksgiving and in the news i have two tidbits that i want to talk about one because i think it's interesting from a current events perspective and one because i think it has an interesting take on the point of the episode the first tidbit is about the ukrainian presidential election in 2004 in which there was a vote and the donetsk region which is the most pro russia section had tried to vote that it was independent and wanted the Russian Federation to recognize it. And on the other side, the government was saying, no, 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 that election doesn't work. So we're going to have to redo the election because the opposition leader was claiming the votes had all been rigged. And Vladimir Putin weighed in to say, clearly, this election tells everybody everything they need to know about Ukraine. Remarkable, I think, to see that it's, yeah, Decades in the making leading to where we are today with Russia having invaded Ukraine and the current turmoil in that region, the Donetsk region, which Russia still is claiming. Well, the people there want to be a part of Russia. The other tidbit I wanted to talk about on this day in 2004, Alberto Abade, a professor at the Harvard university school of government released a paper in which he theorized that the level of political freedom, not poverty, explains terrorism. Areas with intermediate levels of political freedom experience the most terrorism, while societies with high levels of political freedom or authoritarian regimes have low levels of terrorism. An interesting model and an interesting argument, I think, given the subject of the current episode that we're talking about in which we have what has now been exposed as an extremely authoritarian Vulcan government dealing yep. with an insurgency from pacifists, and an interesting plot twist that the insurgency is not one that is violent, but that it's forcing the government to take what are extreme reactions to their presence in the forge. So on to the episode. What happens in this story? Well, we've picked up almost immediately at the beginning, right where we left off previously. Saval has been summoned before the high council in which he is defending his use of a mind meld and basically explaining how come nobody knew I could do this in the first place. This is a plot point from previous episodes Where anytime Vulcans have talked about mind melds. It has been, there's a small group of Vulcans that are able to do this. It is seen as taboo. It is seen as improper. Nobody should do it. And Saval is standing there and saying, yeah, I didn't tell anybody because it would have cost me my job. And he's defending the use of it to expose a traitor amongst the staffing of the high council. And it's here that we learn that to the person who was revealed as having planted the bomb in the previous episode is basically being used as a scapegoat. Did you pick up on, did you, did you read those lines the way I did that Blawless is basically saying, yeah, that guy, we've now arrested him and he's been exposed as a Sirenite. So they're continuing to double down yep. on framing the Sirenites at this point. Meanwhile, Archer is still in the forge with T'Pol and he, it's a weird way that they frame the whole mind meld with a Siren. I found myself thinking in the previous episode, he claimed, I think he punched me. Yep. And now he's saying, well, he touched me. And he said something and it seems like there's a little bit of a confusion either on his side or on the writer's side. I found it a little confusing as to why it was huh. being depicted in both ways.
1: I didn't, it, it felt to me like it was like, he was slowly remembering, like, cause when he was talking about like mm-hmm. the first time it said, it felt like he punched me maybe, mm-hmm. and he, but he was not clear about it. And this one, it was like, I, he did touch me. It was like, he was slowly remembering bits of it. So it didn't mm-hmm. come out to me as an inconsistency. Just, it felt to me like Archer was slowly starting to piece together what had happened. I feel like this story moves at,
0: it doesn't move fast, new, no. but it moves in a very direct line from yes. start to conclusion. And I think that we can kind of hopscotch around without worrying about having to hit every plot point because in talking about it in whatever shape or form, I think we're going to hit all the important parts. What yep. I mean by that is in the desert, we have Archer and to Paul. We have Archer slowly coming to the realization something happened to me. I've got something in me. To Paul debating that a little bit. But eventually, the sirenites also saying, Yeah, you've got this thing and we need it. So we need to get it back. And on the high council, we have Velas who is in full blown eradication mode. He is trying to stamp out the Sierra movement in one fell swoop. He sees an opportunity here that has driven him to bring the full force of the military onto the forge. He just doesn't want any witnesses. So he needs the enterprise to get out between those two storylines. we go back and forth between them. What did you think about how each storyline unfolded? What did you think about the depiction and the ultimate thrust of each storyline? Let's start with the high councils attempts okay to, to okay. shut everything down.
1: The storyline I had the biggest problem with was this storyline mainly because it felt a little ham fisted. It felt a little obvious the way, it, how can I put this? The here's Vulcans and the head Vulcan is acting like a Romulan. Like he is so chewing the scenery over the top emotions brimming over yelling at people Getting irate, it's clear this guy is unhinged, <laughs> and yet people are very quick to say, Humans' emotions are getting out of control. It's like, Yeah, but your leader over here is freaking like chewing, he's chewing the scenery. It's like he is so over the top, tw- you know, twirling his mustache. It, uh, it's obvious he's trying to hide stuff, and nobody around him is questioning it. I get an authoritarian regime that's kind of par for the course, that's kind of how it works, it's how you know, you get author authoritarians that take control of governments and, and rule. I get that, but it didn't, it didn't jive. It felt, it felt too, it felt too obvious and it felt too stark. Like it felt like it should have been more, a little more subdued to feel believable for Vulcans specifically. Um, where it just felt a little like dialed up to 11 when it should have been at like an eight or a nine. Cause for me, it was just like, it was so you're painting him as the villain. It's clear. There's something not right with this guy and the giant question mark over what is wrong with this guy? We'll find out. It's like, it's one of those, you know, it's gonna come in the next couple episodes. So for me, this was the one I had the biggest problem with just basically because of the portrayal, the, 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 portrayal of the actor and the writing around him. It was, it was just a little too ham-fisted for me.
0: Yeah. I think that for me, I agree, I agree with you first of all, but I felt like it was a bit of a depiction of like the March to war that preceded that Iraq. was basically Iraq. Um, yeah, no, it, 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 looked like it was lifted from the headlines. Yeah, it so, was lifted yeah. from the headlines, but it felt like the real world was more Vulcan than this storyline. We had members of the Bush administration going on television, going in front of Congress, going in front of the UN and making logical arguments as to X, Y, and Z leads us to war. We are going to have to go do this thing because of these reasons. And it was more measured. Although it was based on false premises, the real world seemed more Vulcan like In a very cold and calculating, like we've got these reasons, let's go to war. Then this depiction, which feels a little bit cartoonish. You mentioned mustache twirling. I agree with you. This goes back to something we've talked about earlier in the season. It feels very much like the Friday night TV has kind of tainted what they're trying Mm -hmm. to do. I also really like Rex and Dawson as a director, but I feel like some of this lands on her. She needed Mm -hmm. to pull back on this guy. And It felt like the way to get all of this across, they could have done one of two things. Had him come across, he could have said the exact same lines, but delivered them with a cold calculated logic behind it. And he could have just been saying these things like a cold delivery of they're all in one place right now. If we stamp them out right now, we get them all. If we lose them, it will be harder for us to find them in the future. We won't be able to stamp them out then saying that coldly yep. is in some ways more menacing than it is to say it the way he said it, which was kind of yeah. rah, rah, rah. And the other part of it for me would have been to have him be cold and calculating. And then in some moment, some subtle moment, show him, like almost, I, I'm remembering in the movie, the abyss the Navy seal who's slowly cutting his arm underneath the table because he's Mm -hmm. suffering from the bends and he's releasing the nitrogen from his blood. That's why you do that. Give us a moment with Velas where it's that level of stress relief. We see him in a moment by himself, maybe with one other advisor, let him bend a piece of metal or punch a screen or do something to show like, it's all a facade. Like he's got this logical facade, but underneath it, he's rolling in his anger. So give us that kind of thing. The other way you could have gone, I would have appreciated what if trip started calling out in their call? Like you don't sound all that logical. Yeah. You sound pretty emotional. emotional You seem like you're barely holding on. Let it be trip as a stand in for the viewer to say, we all see that this doesn't make sense we see through this because what ends up happening is he has a call with trip in which he is clearly barely holding himself together. And the call ends with him hanging up on trip and trip is just more confused about what's going on as opposed to calling it out. And I would have loved if in that call, the reason that the the loss hangs up on him is trip saying, you don't sound all that logical. In fact, you seem pretty emotional to me and then have the call end in that way. And have Trump yeah. then turn and say, like, looks like we're going to be fighting the Vulcans now. Like that would have fit, I think the tone of what they're going for better than having the mustache twirling, but nobody's I, calling it out. And I, the room gr- is filled with Vulcans and none of them bat an eye about the fact that their leader is storming around looking at battle plans. The scene where he's looking at the battle plans and it's got all sorts of animation and little arrows and it's impossible to decipher what's going on. It looks like flight patterns and attack patterns and all this. And he looks like he's practically going. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just like,
1: (laughs) this is not, this is not a Vulcan. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the other Vulcans could have been giving each other side eye. Yeah. Like what the hell's going on? Any kind of something something subtle that would have said to us, the viewer of they all recognize something's not right here. But the fact that nobody does makes me as a viewer go, what the heck? And your, your idea for trip acknowledging it and saying that, and then after that call being like, okay, it looks like we're gonna have to do some stuff. Yeah. Would help to explain why trip does what he does later, because there's that other plot line where they send that shuttle to try to land. Yeah. And they end up getting in a firefight with the Vulcans. And I wrote a note of like this plot point doesn't a hundred percent make sense because trip is basically, here's a, an ally. And he is basically will willing to risk war with the Vulcans doing what he's doing, going against the direct order of his, of Starfleet makes no sense what he's doing. If he had acknowledged said that comment that you just talked about and the call ended, it could have been like, okay, there is something seriously wrong here. We got to take some extreme measures. Yeah. It would have made more sense for what he did that follows, but it, it it was they, kind of sloppy have, storytelling. It was sloppy storytelling. Did. And they could have yeah. th- another way that they could
0: have handled the, the moment that you're talking about, like, why is trip willing to do this? And I thought it was going to come up in the call and it didn't. And I was like, why didn't they write that in? It's yeah. the moment where he's like, we've, the says we've finished our investigation. You guys can go the previous episode. They set up the idea that it was understood that because this was considered earth territory, mm-hmm. It was human's responsibility to investigate in that moment. When Velas says we've conducted and completed our investigation, you guys should go trip could have said, hold on a moment. We haven't finished with our investigation. And since this is considered earth territory, we need to complete our side of this before we go anywhere. We're not leaving. You're breaking an agreement. Have that be the point where trip is actually Correct. Like lay it down as trip is right. As opposed to what it currently is, which is it comes across as trip. Like you just mentioned, willfully ignoring all sorts of commands and it needed to be, it needed to be laid out a little bit different than that.
1: Which up until this point, I wanna say, I did write this down that I did like to see the evolution of trip in the, in these episodes because he's in command of the enterprise. And I like the way they show that he is much more comfortable with that position now. Like he is early on in the series.
0: They laid it out as like, he was always going on the missions and and did not like being left in command. And they're definitely showing a grooming, showing him as a
1: commander. He's he's growing into that role and he looks comfortable in it, but it was a shame that they had him make these like, yeah, I'm going to risk war with the Vulcans. Why? Because it was like, that didn't make sense if they had just explained that it would have, I think benefited him as a character more because I did enjoy what they're doing with him. Otherwise.
0: Yeah. And ultimately just to wrap up the, the conversation we're having about the high council, it leads of course to the space battle between the Vulcans and the enterprise. I found myself liking the special effects of that. I liked the battle sequence, the, and leaving it at that tumultuous moment, I thought was a, a worth a worthy payoff to the building up of tension. Now to the other element of the story and this is one of those cases where we don't really have an A plot and a B plot even though mm-hmm. they're in different places doing different things they are all part of the same thrust. So on the forge on Vulcan to Paul and Archer and their interactions with Tapao and the other Serenites, who are the ones who reveal that the Vulcan that Paul and Archer had met in the wilderness was in fact Siren. He was their leader. And now that he has gone, T'Pol is in charge. And we have a bit of confusion amongst the Sirenites as to what to do next. They do not really know how to continue without their, their pivotal leader. And it is slowly revealed to everybody involved as Archer keeps complaining, like something is going on that in fact he is now carrying the Katra of Siren with him. And this goes back to something that we talked about last week, which is if your philosophical teachings are not about learning and regurgitating, but actually mind-melded conveyance of understanding from generation to generation, his relationship now to having Siren brings with it Surak. Because Siren had found the Katra of Serac. There is some interesting discussion from T'Pol around artifacts similar to this attempts to reveal earlier from scientists, the attempt to break through into these containers that were supposed to hold the Katras. And the science says, none of this is actually real, but here Archer is hallucinating and I'm just curious. What's your take on how they depicted Archer's interactions with Serac? What is your take on how that entire ideological aspect of Vulcan history and philosophy is conveyed
1: in this episode? I'm curious to see if this like, (laughs) if this is different from your interpretation, I like this a lot. I really did like how they portrayed it as kind of a pseudo-hallucination where it's kind of like this dreamlike state where he's like in a room and then suddenly he's still in that room but in a different dreamlike state. And so it's very disorienting. I like the way they portrayed it and the conversations with Saren where he was saying like it's it's like a waking dream. It's like it's he's having a conversation with this kind of like memory from through the eyes of Saren when he was seeing the bombing and explosions and the nuclear war that was happening on Vulcan. I really, really Star Trek geek in me was, was eating this up. It was like, it's really cool to get a small itty bitty taste of what Vulcan went through at some point in their history. I thought that was amazing. And I also like the depiction of how he is transcending time because he's getting passed down through, through Vulcan to Vulcan to Vulcan to Vulcan, where this is a way where in, in our history, you have the Bible and you have different religious texts. And then depending on who's reading it, And who's interpreting it, you can bend it. You can make it say what you want. Yeah. Right. And this is so cool because it's like, well, in Vulcan, it's like, you can actually pat the guy who came up with the principles and, or, or who knows the principles like better than anybody, he's literally getting handed down. So it's like, it's harder to come up with a misinterpretation when it's like, literally like he's in your head and somebody can express well, that's not the true meaning of what this is supposed to be. Yeah. It's like that to me, I thought was so cool and so alien and different. It's like you can see how Vulcan is supposed to be. Like, this is, it was su- such a novel, interesting sci fi kind of concept of how they are, are, are pass religious texts down versus the way we do it. Mm-hmm. I-, I loved it. I always, I just ate this part up of the whole story.
0: Yeah. I, I agree with you mm-hmm. and I do have some differing opinions. There's, there's yeah. something that I read, which was, I do agree with, which the fact that it's Archer as the vessel, the fact that it's yes. Archer as the human coming to rescue the Vulcan people, Yes, that is an error that has happened. Uh, the white savior principle again and again, yep. and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and, and it just continues. And here it is on full display again, where. Uh, thank goodness Paul. Archer shows up so that he can save the Vulcan people from themselves. And I'm like, it wouldn't, it have been just as good if it was to Paul, like should have been to Paul, you know, and have Archer saying like it would have made from a storytelling perspective. I would have really relished their conversations being reversed where Archer is like to Paul, how can you possibly have somebody's spirit inside you? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And her saying, I agree with you, but I'm going through something that I don't understand and having to how yeah. walk in and say, you're now carrying the Katra of our leader. I need that. And to Paul, her mother is right there and saying, but if you do this, you can kill my daughter. Like suddenly the stakes are like, are very different, pushed up in a way that I think would have really benefited the show from a storytelling perspective. Having said all of that, I agree with you. The elements of Sirach talking to Archer, I liked the way they talk to each other. I like the fact that Sirach is basically like my mind to your mind, right? Like we're on the same page here. It's not like, oh, you strange human. It's just like, he's talking to the vessel he's in. I really like that. I would have liked a little bit bleeding the other direction as well. I kept thinking, wouldn't it have been interesting if in the difficulty of a human having this in him, we've seen this with McCoy after star Trek two Spock does the remember and McCoy begins to effectively go psychotic as a result of it. I would have liked to see a little bit of bleeding into archers reality. Some of the group scenes where all the Vulcans are showing up and saying, you've got this contra, we need to get it out. If Siroc was subtly in the room, if you had moments of him saying like, I'm going through a thing and it's that guy and everybody's like, there's nobody there. And just like kind of a fight club sort of yeah, like, I'm, Tyler I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I don't yeah, yeah, like, I don't understand how I can understand what I understand. Um, Especially since it was planted in the previous episode, Archer's experience of going through the forge, he's kind of instinctively becoming Vulcan. But if in this one, he's more conscious of, oh, it's this thing that's in me. Yeah. Having that projected outside of him and bleeding back and forth. The whole, Surak is aware of the present. He is saying to Archer, Vulcan is going to tear itself apart again. You need to get them back on the right path. So I think by having a projection of Serac into the present would have worked, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have changed anything. And I think it would have added something to the experience for Archer and it could have added a level of the instability of their relationship because Archer needs to be depicted as in danger from this, because we know what it was doing to McCoy. There was a, there was an element in search for Spock where McCoy was in danger as a result. Mm -hmm. Of this, yeah, he was basically breaking down.
1: So, they had so to I him.
0: think that that would have added something here. And there's also the plot points of tapau's desire to get this out. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. I'm there's a there's a kernel of this that is just the same as my problem with Velas and his depiction. Yep. Yes. I would have really appreciated if Tapao's reasoning and all of this was coldly calculated
1: again, like just make it came across as slightly emotional. Yeah. It didn't seem like it seemed like she was either hungry for power. It seemed like she, her, her bias towards humans is in direct conflict of the teachings (laughs) of Serac. Yeah. So it was like, if she's a Serenite, she wouldn't actually be doing what she's doing or saying what she's saying. Yeah. They could have come up with a more cold and calculated logical reasoning. I, that's one thing I wanted to bring up about Tapao. Yeah. I didn't like this specific instance of her portrayal and it's the writing, not the acting. Yeah. I think it's more. the writing,
0: not the acting. And it's, and it goes back to what I was saying before about in a mock time, the next time we see Tapao, she is going to be this high priestess who is carried around like the queen of England. She is literally, she's supposed to be ancient. So she's very carefully taken care of. And she shows up and is basically refers to Kirk's involvement as in this cryptic way of like, we'll let a human be here for this one time. Mm -hmm. This experience can explain why she looks at a human and it's just like, yeah, it's okay that they're there, but she's depicted as not quite as Vulcan as she will be, which I can understand there's growth there for the character, but she needed to be more of what she would become, the seeds of that needed to be reflected more. She needed to be saying things that were along the lines of it's an impossibility for, for what is in Archer to maintain itself in Archer. We don't know if a human can actually be the vessel in this way. It's imperative that we rescue that, like that message would have worked. That like, like Archer, I'm not trying to do anything to you. You don't, you don't strike me as a bad guy but we don't know what a human mind can do for, or with this vessel, with this, with this katra. we need to get it out of you because what if you can't hold it? What if you die and it's lost? What if you taint it? It's damaged. What if it's damaged? Like we, we need to get it out of you for all those reasons. And I do not want to kill anybody here, but if your death gets us the katra back, it is worth it. That message would be uh, right. more in line with the, the syrenite message as opposed to what really comes across and is actually vocalized says, as like, do you expect
1: us to follow a human? Yeah, it was like, yeah. whoa, okay. And to Paul's no. mother
0: even says like, <laughs> you're letting your dislike of humans taint your approach to this. And like, yeah, I get that we're dealing with a Vulcan society that isn't the Vulcan society of the original series, or even beyond that yep. I get that, but the Serenites should be closer to what we anticipate than any other Vulcans. And so the right. fact that they aren't, the only one that we've seen who actually seems Vulcan is Surak and Siren. You know, yep. Siren was wandering in the desert and was, you know, saying all the things he was saying and was just like, well, we're trying to get back to first principles here. And now Tapau needs to be the one saying those things. And you would expect mm-hmm. that she would have melded with Siren and would have that aspect with her. A little bit more than is on display. But ultimately what we see in the story is her making the argument. We need to get this out of Archer. They try to do a procedure, which he agrees to. It is, I I did like the fact there was the whole debate of like, it could kill him, but he does make the choice. Yeah. So they try to pull it out of him. It does not work. And that happens to be the same moment when the Vulcan government is finally like, we can't wait for the enterprise to leave. We're going to start carpet bombing. And we see, uh, a devastating attack on what is effectively a religious temple. Yep. Um, and as I was watching it, I found myself actually moved by the fact that here was a bombing of a religious site. And this was something that was happening on earth here in the war against Baghdad, the war in Afghanistan some of the things that were done by in Afghanistan, the religiously motivated leaders prior to nine 11 were known to be blowing up religious artifacts that predated Islam's place in the region because they didn't want any signs other than Islamic ones. And so this kind of thing happens. And I found myself moved by the fact that they were showing this forge village, this sanctuary being destroyed in this way. I thought it was very effective. Yeah, me too. The Vulcans and Archer scramble around. There's some discussion around the fact that the Sirenites have been looking for an artifact for quite a while. And this is the Kishara. The Kishara as an artifact, we are not told what it will do or what it is, but it's just incredibly important to them. And Surak in reference to this in one of the visions that Archer has mentions, yeah, the Kishara, you need to save this. So Archer says, I know how to find it. And this is a point of criticism from people who have reviewed this episode. The Sierra have been quote, looking for years for this thing. It is down a series of catacombs that if they had that much time and nobody was looking for them yet, they would have found it because it was basically behind a door that says important stuff behind this. I mean, it's just like, it's kind of a ridiculous moment. He doesn't walk up to what looks like a wall. He doesn't walk up to a boulder. He doesn't move something that looks like. No, oh he goes my down gosh, a hallway, a turns left, and is like,
1: "Hey, here's a door." Yeah,
0: he goes up <laughs> to the door. He knows how to unlock yeah. it, and yeah. his unlocking of it is supposed to be the mysterious moment. But it really kind of sounded like the air coming out of a balloon as I was watching that scene. I was just like, "Oh, come on!" Like, yeah. like all the Vulcans are like, "I told you we
1: should have looked behind that door." They could have made it look just like it was like something carved into the rock, like, like, you know, like a a series of like tablets engraved into the wall. So it looks like it's just some kind of, or even better. What if it
0: wasn't hidden in a way that they would have anticipated? Because as they're walking, he, they find in one of my favorite moments in that, that sequence of them walking through the catacombs, they find a mummy and he's like, oh, this is such and so. And Vulcans, there are like, how would you know that? And he's like, oh, he was yeah. a student of serox So this is who he is. What if he had moved the mummy's body and behind the mummy, which would never be disturbed by a Vulcan. They found a little chamber. And in that chamber was the Kishara. I thought like something as subtle as like hiding it in plain sight. Nobody will think to look behind the tomb of one of our acolytes. Right. We'll just put it there. So it's like the Kashara could have been in some sequence like that, where as he starts to move the body, they're like, we don't disturb a burial yeah. site like this. And then he's just like, Pada. and they're like, <laughs> and then they have to flee. And as they're running some interesting choices again, I, I love her Raxan Dawson as a director, but some interesting choices and the two women running with Archer keep deferring to him to not only carry the artifact, but also the torch. Some very strange moments of like, yes, somebody falls. He puts the torch down to pick them up and then he gets the torch handed back to him so that he can carry the torch. And I'm just like literally making the human, the light bearer, and artifact holder, like, like it's almost doubling down on like this human is going to save Vulcan society instead of him just being a part of a trio scrambling to survive. I, yep. I thought that was just kind of silly and a little too obvious to me. Like why do they keep handing the torch back to Archer? But they get out of the catacombs and unfortunately find to Paul's mother has been severely injured in the attacks which leads to a rather tender moment between the two characters. Did you, what, how did you feel about their, their scene where at the end to Paul is effectively saying goodbye to her mother?
1: I liked it, but at the same time I didn't, because I felt like, I don't know. I, I felt like using her mother. I don't know the, the, the tension in the relationship of the mother and using her death to try to push to Paul's character forward. I would, I w I don't know. I felt like a, you could see it a mile coming. It's like, it's like a red shirt beaming down to the surface. It's like when her mom's part of the storyline and they're in this dangerous territory, it's like, oh, they're gonna use her mom to, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. She's gonna die. Yeah. I remember thinking that the first time I ever saw this episode, it wasn't just because I've seen it before <laughs> because I knew it was coming, but it's, it's, it felt a little, um, Obvious, but putting that to the side, I thought it was a very nice, tender moment of her mom saying, I've always been proud of you, you know, basically saying to her, I love you, essentially, in a very Vulcan way. Yeah. And then I also enjoyed the portrayal of Tapal, where she's crying, the emotion hits her, and then you see her just like in a Vulcan way, just stop. Yeah. Just stop. A tear is going down her face. But she stops crying. Yeah. It's just like clamping down those emotions. Yeah. It's an so interesting depiction. An nice touch. yeah. It's an interesting
0: yeah. depiction of the Paul who's been described as having an emotional barrier lowered permanently as a result of the, uh, semi addiction from the previous season to the material that she was using in order to keep mm-hmm. herself from to basically unlock emotional response. And she's damaged herself in a various, in a very specific way and to see that on display in this way, I think was the best use of that. The, the Vulcan yes. crying who then is able to regain that control, but there is the crying. It doesn't, yes. it doesn't happen to anybody else in that scene. And I agree with you. The moment you see the mother is at the temple, you're like, Oh, dead woman walking. She's got a. Yeah. <laughs> <like>, there's, there's, <laughs> yes. there's, there's, there's no <laughs> doubt that something is going to happen. But ultimately, if you're going to have a character pass, I'm, so much happier that they had had her in previous episodes. So that yes. this wasn't introducing her at the beginning of this episode to kill her. Cause that would have been
1: glaringly obvious that it was coming, but, but there was, there was also the aspect of it of like, they came through to me. It was in the subtext of like, you remember the guy that you married to try to save my career? Well, my career was screwed no matter what you did. So thanks for that anyway. <laughs> That she died. You know what I mean? It was yeah, kind of like, yeah, oh, the marriage was completely meaningless. That's yes, great. Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. They're like, so you let me marry that guy knowing you yeah, were gonna exactly. come out. <laughs> you knew that marriage wasn't gonna help at all, you but you knew still knew that let I me go through was with basically it? throwing away the love of my life for no reason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> but in any event, the bombing is seemingly effective against a large group of the Serenites. There appears to be a lot of death as a res- result of this, they knew it was coming just early enough that some of them were able to get away to is alive to is alive. Archer is alive. They have the Kishara. And meanwhile, in space, the Vulcans make the statement to the enterprise, like, look, you know, you're outnumbered, you know, you're outgunned. We are just going to blow you out of the sky unless you leave immediately. And that's what they do. They end up saying like, okay, we got to go and trip orders that the ship head to Andoria. So we see now the beginnings of mm-hmm. what has to become the Federation. The mm-hmm. prime players are in place where we see like, okay, something positive is going to come out of this, but it's at a flash point right now before it can get there. And this is, The destination because they basically have figured out, oh, what's coming is Vulcan is looking for a first strike opportunity to go up against Andoria. This is a authoritarian regime that is looking to stamp out enemies at home and away. And they're not afraid to start a interstellar war to do this that will effectively pull in everybody, which would include earth and whoever else is in this region Mm -hmm. of space. So the end of this episode is the most cliffhangery of cliffhangers as they jet off to Andoria. So any, any bets as to whether or not we see Shran next episode? Well, I would say, yes, there's a strong (laughs)
1: chance of (laughs) Shran
0: in our forecast, there's a forecast with high, high chance of Shran, which is always good news in my book. Hello pink skin. Yes. So we got the pink skins, we get the, the green blooded Vulcans and we get some potential storytelling in the next episode, which is going to be Kishara. And before we sign off, Matt, is there anything you'd like to remind our listeners about that you have coming up on your other channel?
1: Well, by the time this episode's out, uh, on my undecided channel, I have a video about the big fusion breakthrough that was announced right at the new year time. The Lawrence Livermore national laboratory announced basically hitting nuclear fusion ignition point, which has never been done before. Major milestone with a mad massive asterisk after it, that was not well reported mm. <laughs> So the, the hype of the announcement kind of like, uh, uh kind of the mark a little bit. So I have a video all about that. That's I think kind of an interesting topic. Mm. Interesting.
0: I don't think I can recall any time ever before in history that a headline misrepresented a scientific breakthrough. <laughs>
1: you know, I know. Fascinating. Never happened. It's Never happened. happened. As happened.
0: for me, you can check out my website, seanferrell.com. You can also go directly to your favorite bookstore, favorite bookseller, like Amazon or your public library. You can look for the books there. And coming up later this year, you're going to be able to find my new middle grade series, starting off with book one of the sinister secrets, which is the sinister secrets of singe. And that book will be available in June. Don't forget, if you'd like to support the show, please consider reviewing us on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever it was, you found this go back there, follow your own footprints back to that place, leave a review, subscribe, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to support us directly, you can go to trekintime.show, click the Become a Supporter button. That allows you to throw coins at our heads, it allows you to leave bruises on our scalps, and it allows you to become an ensign. When you support us in that way, you immediately become a subscriber to our spinoff show, which is Out of Time. Out of Time will show up immediately in your feed directly. And what you get in Out of Time are our discussions about everything that we don't talk about here. So we talk about all the different star treks, regardless of when they were broadcast. We might talk about star Wars. We've recently talked about the show and, or we talk about other shows like Willow, which are not even sci-fi. So we talk about a little bit of everything, whatever catches our eye. We hope you'll be interested in checking that out. All of that really does help support the show. Thank you so much, everybody for listening or watching, and we'll talk to you next time.